Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Kai, and DR talking about all the news you don't know from the past week. I'm still talking about the bathroom article that we talk about this week that, like, it really just blew my mind. I was, like, fascinated by it, just, like, truly fascinated. And then I sit down and talk to Stanley Nelson and Tracy Curry, the directors of this incredible documentary on Attica. I cannot rave about a documentary more. Watch it. Listen to the interview. I mean, just 10 out of 10. And my advice for this week is about friendship. Uh, and relationships and community. We have to be intentional about the relationships that we build. We need to be mindful that we need to like actually plan to be with our friends, plan a game night. Let's plan to go to the movies as a big group, like plan with your friends. That if the pandemic taught me anything, it's that we should just be way more intentional about our relationships and that we uh, should build community as practice, especially as we get older. Here we go. Family, welcome, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. Well, lots of political things happening, lots of cultural things happening, but we can't talk about everything. So I somehow convinced DeRay that we're going to talk about the political stuff. So. <laughs> Frozen face. So, you know, we had results from Virginia, from New Jersey, from Buffalo, which we actually, you know, we've been watching the race in Buffalo uh, in, in great support of India Walton. So as we know, Terry McCullough did not take Virginia. Um, we also came quite close to losing uh, uh, New Jersey's governorship, um, but pulled that one through. So, you know, I'll I'll get into into <laughs> into my news later because I think that's how I'm trying to be hopeful about this whole thing. It's is is essentially like what are our learnings and what is happening that makes sense and that is truly progressive in the Democratic Party. I think with Terry McAuliffe, it seemed to be that folks just weren't that excited about him. And I think generally folks weren't that excited across the board about coming out in this election. I mean, the turnout was pretty low. The, there was an election in, in New York. You know, those turnouts were low as well. Um, also in Virginia, we saw that the Latino vote uh, increasingly went for the Republican candidate, which is a whole separate conversation that would take a whole podcast to get into. But ultimately, I think the, you know, the Democratic establishment has some work to do. Um, I don't necessarily see India Walton's loss as a sign of we should go with establishment, establishment candidates, because I, obviously, as we see in Virginia, New Jersey, that's not necessarily a road to, to winning either. Um, so I don't know. Interesting to hear what you all think. I mean, I, I, you know, at, at this point between, you know, what's happening or not happening in Washington, what's not happening or happening within the establishment Democratic Party, it just seems that we have a long way to go. And I don't know who is taking leadership of the ship. I mean, who's in charge? That's a good question. That's above my pay grade. But I will say 
that I think what we saw in Virginia was a combination of a couple things. Number one, we have been talking about this phenomenon of the Republicans being able to aptly engage suburban, what CNN calls suburban women and what the rest of us call white women, in these issues of education and parental rights. And Glenn Youngkin started in with very disciplined messaging around school about education. And I think that... Um, given the fact that parents have had a front row seat in terms of what is happening in their kids' classrooms, um, this message, this education message resonated in ways that I think the Democratic Party underestimated, really. And when you see who Glenn Youngkin did the best with, um, besides white men, it was white women. And so, um, but I was even stunned to see um lots of, well, not lots of, to see lots of undecided minority voters in the Virginia election. And I think part of that is also because, you know, as a country, we're putting up, no disrespect to Terry McAuliffe, but retreads, right? People who've been there, done that. We're not energizing people with new ideas or new opportunities. And I'm disappointed in the Biden administration and how many People who have been in previous administrations, they're relying on the sign of a healthy democracy is good exchange of ideas, new ideas, young people involved in politics. And I think that Glenn Youngkin mobilized a group of people that um, could have been mobilized otherwise. And, you know, we got to get this messaging thing together. We got to deeply understand what people's concerns are. Um, the Democrats completely underplayed the education issue, and it's an issue they could have owned in Virginia. I also think it's a reminder, too, I, I look at Build Back Better, Bill, right, that's what's called, Build Back Better, is that uh, some of the messaging around the good, you know, we obviously have a lot of things we want the Biden administration to do, but the good things they are doing a lot of people can't explain them, you know, and it's like we got to figure out a way to to help people understand like the infrastructure bill was a huge thing that just passed. A lot of money is going to cities, a lot of jobs we created. And, you know, I don't know a lot of people that can talk about it. I was fascinated by New Jersey, the governor of New Jersey almost losing like that was not something that was on my wild card. And I don't know if you saw, but the um, the president of the New Jersey Senate seemingly lost. It looks like he's not conceding as of today, but. Um, the guy that ran against him spent $2,000 on his campaign. The guy, like, was just a, you know, he was a guy who just decided to run. And I was reading up on it, and you just have to remember how much of this stuff really is like, do people know you? Are they connected to you? And one of the things they held against Sweeney, the New Jersey uh, Senate president, was people in his district were like, you had the power to stop school closures. Like, you had the, like, you were the juice, and we didn't feel the juice coming down in our district. And you're like, that's real, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens too when this age of voters ages out, right? Like when when sort of the the 20, 30, 40-year-olds become the, the main block of voters and like who is speaking to them will be interesting. I will say, I need, I need like a primer on Build Back Better and what's happening with the bill and the vote. Like, I feel like I need like a very simple website that has like a, a T-chart that's like in, out or something, you know, like, because it is, every time I read, I'm like, this is, I'm not smart enough for this. So uh, that's how I feel about that. But, uh, you know, Buffalo surprised that, I, I, I'm not surprised because the media really beat her up until the end, India Walton. Um, but, but yeah, we got a lot of work to do with these elections. And Lord knows the midterms might be a, a, another full court press. 
And, and the last thing I'll say, too, that I think that Youngkin was able to do is he kept Trump away. Right. So made a decision to keep him away, to not have Trump come to Virginia. And I think for a lot of moderates, a lot of undecideds and a lot of, you know, kind of, you know, Mitt Romney, John McCain type Republicans, I think there was an appeal to him. You know, I think they were, you know, generally disgusted with Trump, don't want to be associated with Trump. But the more and more we see these Republican candidates that kind of, you know, are kind of post-Trump, even though they have the same ideals, even though, you know, they espouse some of the same hate, I think the disassociation um, and the further we the further we get away from the Trump presidency, I think the more successful some of these candidates um, are going to be, which is also another challenge for the Democratic Party. But what Youngkin did was he was Trumpish without Trump, right? He there you go, Kaya. Yeah, <laughs> there was a yeah. real nuance to that because he was continuing to talk to that base and to galvanize that base without the extremity of the Trump connection. Exactly. And so I think that's what a lot of people seemingly want. And he struck that chord perfectly. That's the I think I think that that's the scary part for the midterms. Don't go anywhere. More politics. The people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. I'm not going to lie. I'm sure like many of you, I was very, very, very bummed with the results in Virginia in particular. But I'm trying to be on a higher vibration, really, because at this point I can't take any more anything. And so I was trying to think, okay, let me reflect. Let me look for some news that is going to kind of counteract what happened in Virginia. And so I found this um, article written by Dr. Nadia E. Brown, who's a professor of government, um, and she's director, actually, of Women's and Gender Studies Program at Georgetown. So shout out to Dr. Brown. But she wrote um, an opinion piece about, you know, the many, many challenges that black women face when they're running for elected offices. And yet, even with those challenges, the research says, her research says, um, that they are the best candidate still to win, which I thought, of course they are, black women. Fabulous. So. Let's get into this. So she set the stage. So she, you know, essentially letting us know where we are. So the Center for American, the Center for American Women in Politics and Higher Heights, which if you don't know Higher Heights, get to know them. They do a lot of advocacy for black, um, black, black women in particular running for office. So there's less than 2% of black women that serve in statewide positions in the United States. Of 310 statewide executive offices, there are six black women who are currently serving. So we have Tish James, who's attorney general in New York, Sheila Oliver, lieutenant governor of New Jersey, which will probably change, Sandra Kennedy, who is the corporation commissioner in Arizona, Sabina Matos, who's the lieutenant governor of Rhode Island, Juliana Stratton, who's the lieutenant governor of Illinois, Shirley Weber, finally, who's the secretary of state for California. So all of these women are Democrats. Um, And so Dr. Brown also goes into, you know, the six black women that ran for governor in 2018. So she kind of sees this trajectory as increasing in terms of black women running for statewide office. Um, And in addition uh, to those women that ran in 2018, we see that there's a burgeoning 2020 a burgeoning 2022 election cycle where we'll have Tish James, who I just mentioned. She's running for uh, governor in New York, Daniel Allen in Massachusetts, Deirdre DeGere in Iowa. Shout out to you. Sending you love. Deirdre Gilbert in Texas, same. Connie Johnson in Oklahoma, Lord, and Mia McLeod in South Carolina. Notice the other thing about these black women. You know, they're not afraid. They're going to run in these states, these hardcore, scary white supremacist states in there, and we're going to support them. So anyway, Professor. Okay, so that's kind of setting the stage. Her research really goes into all of the things that black women have to overcome when they're running. So, you know, deeply racialized and gender barriers. Um, uh, Misogynoir is misogynoir is very real for black women candidates. Um, These women experience sexual harassment on the campaign trail, difficulties in fundraising, which is real. You know, if you can't raise money, you're not going to win. Little or no support from their political party, i.e. the Democratic establishment. Media bias, which DeRay talks about with India Walton. Lack of access to political networks. um, Critiques on their appearances, um, as well as just a general racialized political hierarchy. Um, So with all of that, though... Dr. Brown's research still shows that black women are the best suited to win. And why is that? And so my summation 
of her research is that Black women know how to organize. Always have. Always will. Brilliant at it. And not only do they know how to organize, um, she found in her research that they also organize intersectionally, which is so important. And they're able to unite across different communities who are marginalized, who are suffering from the same um, inequalities and inequities. Um, and, and it's shown when they get into office, they continue that kind of intersectional unified um, uh approach to how they direct policy, to how they work with communities. Um, so I just thought that was was brilliant, one. And I think this is exciting, given that we just lost this Virginia's race. We were very close to losing New Jersey. So I'm embarrassed to say that I did not know that there were two Black women who were running during the Democratic primary in Virginia, uh, Jennifer McLennan and Jennifer Carol Foy. I think part of this is like, I think this is part of the discussion, right? Like, even though Terry McAuliffe ended up winning the nomination, there were still these excellent Black women candidates. Um, And as far as I can tell, Jennifer Carroll Foy did really, really well and raised a significant amount of money. I think still probably like, you know, a fourth of what Terry McAuliffe did, but still a significant amount. So all that to say, y'all, you know, I think my lesson learned from Virginia because I think we all need to do a bit of self-reflection in this party, is to make sure I'm paying extra special attention to these Black women who are running across the board. I think these statewide positions are really important. As we know, you know, Stacey Abram would have been the first um, Black woman governor, period. I think she opened up the door to give a lot of folks the courage and enthusiasm and spirit to run for these statewide elected positions. So I'm excited for 2022, actually. I'm also going to do more in terms of making sure I know who these women are and making sure I'm giving to their campaign and making sure that my network does as well. Um, So all that to say, yes, it was a loss in terms of, we lost Virginia, Terry McAuliffe is not the governor there, but we had two women who ran successful primary campaigns there, which which is progress. So... I'm excited. I'm excited about about 2022. That's soon, right? 2022. Yeah. I mean, if if your excitement is just about black women in statewide offices, then maybe Virginia is a reason for you to celebrate because the lieutenant governor that was just elected alongside uh, Glenn Youngkin is Winsome Sears, who is a... uh, a Republican. And I took note of her as I was watching all of the Virginia campaign commercials, which, you know, I have complained about incessantly. They just flooded our airwaves. But uh, Lieutenant, now Lieutenant Governor Sears appeared in her campaign ads with an AK-47 talking about school choice and the right to bear arms. And she really did. And so I, I... She really did looking real... You're like, okay. So I, you know, I'm I'm all for black girl magic, most of it. However, <laughs> I'd like mine without an AK-47, please. I'm just saying. I'll just say that this is a reminder that organizations like Run For Something have been incredible at getting a host of people to 
feel like they have a pathway to run for office that that wouldn't have before, especially Black women. And, you know, I think about somebody who I did run for office and it was not only was just like being a candidate just wild, but it's like all the basics. You're like the campaign filing report. There are all these things that are that are barriers for people that are way beyond like, could you do the job, you know? I think that what we've seen in the past year or two is is a set of resources and places coming for people so that they actually like can meaningfully engage in the system. So I'm excited. I'm excited about statewide office. And I'm also excited about more black and brown people, especially women, people in the queer community being on a host of boards. I want you to be like the town clerk. I want you to be on the school board. I want you to be on all the boards because the white supremacists are ramping up and they are getting even more organized in a way that the consequences we've seen to be dire. My news today is from the city that I live in, Washington, D.C., and this very peculiar case of what has been what is called the Jack Daniels Committee. The D.C. Fraternal Order of Police Lodge, which is a clubhouse for all of the police unions, local and federal in Washington, um, made 500, more than $500,000 over the course of three years selling whiskey online illegally. What? The police? Doing something illegal? No, it couldn't be. Well, it turns out, friends, it was. Uh, in 2017, the lodge was facing significant financial hardship um, and were on the verge of shutting down when one particular member of the lodge had an amazing idea, which is let's buy barrels of whiskey from Jack Daniels in Tennessee put the Fraternal Order of Police logo on it and upsell it. And so they bought a barrel for $11,000 and within a few, they sold the bottles for 80 bucks each. The bottles roughly cost them about $46. They sold them for 80 and um, they collected $38,000 in just a couple of hours. And they were like, we, gotta, we got the hotcakes, let's sell them. And so... They went from buying one barrel to buying multiple barrels. Who was that brilliant police officer who came up with that idea? Well, it turns out he wasn't a police officer. In fact, you have to be a, a D.C. police officer, one of the branches, in order to join this lodge. But this man was actually a Walmart security guard from Tennessee, who, how did he get into the lodge? Well, that's a good question. Seems like he was a, <laughs> the last time he was a full-time uh, police officer. He was a police officer in the community college division of something or another in Los Angeles. Um, so he'd served as a full-time police officer on a community college campus for a couple of years. And then he's been a volunteer police um volunteer policemen in small towns, but his job is a security guard at Walmart. It says that he was planning on moving to D.C., and so he apparently applied to join the lodge, and nobody can really tell who approved it because by all, you know, um, circumstances, he is not a candidate. But he had this great idea and went on to be named Volunteer of the Year and get all kinds of awards for this brilliant idea. There was one little woman, woman in the lodge who raised her hand. She's a paralegal and said, isn't this illegal? 
And the then president at the time said, no, it's not illegal. And he, to this day, maintains that he thinks that that's the right answer. Apparently, it was not the right answer. You have to have a particular kind of license in order to sell liquor online. They didn't have it. They have a license to sell liquor in their club, but not not a license to sell liquor in individual bottles to people. Um, They didn't have licenses to sell in the states that they were selling to. Transporting liquor across state lines without a permit is also um, against the law. And so they were breaking multiple, multiple laws, but they were doing brisk business and making a lot of money. Well, where did all of that money go to the widows and children, right? No, of course not. It went to Michael Kugel, who is the um, celebrated uh, I'd, me- member, non-member, member, depends on how you cut it, who came up with this idea. Um, a lot of the money went to his personal expenses. In fact, he lodged expenses that literally said that he'd driven around the earth 2.9 times in one year. Um, and so he made a lot of money. The upper echelons of the lodge made a lot of money. They were even storing their Jack Daniels bottles in the Grand Lodge. Really, that's what you call your National FOP Union headquarters, the Grand Lodge. Does that sound familiar? There are other organizations that call their things Grand Lodges, like the Klan, but we won't go there. Anyway, they were storing stuff, not just in D.C., but in Tennessee in the Grand Lodge, which is the national headquarters of the Fraternal Order of Police Lodges. And what has happened was what happened was somebody was like, I don't think this is right. People started to ask internally, um, should we be doing this? And the new president launched the new president of the lodge launched an investigation, scathing investigation. Um, Hats off to them for at least doing an internal investigation. Um, But it seems that while the report on the investigation comes back with all of this evidence of them breaking the law. Nobody has been held accountable. Um, The U.S. Attorney's Office declined to prosecute because they don't see enough clear evidence. Um, ABRA, which is the Alcohol and Beverage Regulatory Authority in D.C., is now investigating because they just got a tip. But Mr. Krugel, who started this whole thing, is fine. The previous president is fine. Nobody has seen any consequences. And at the end of the day, the lodge netted only about $11,000 and they have about 1,400 bottles of Jack Daniels that are stuck in their lodge that they can't sell. So kind of fascinating in the annals of, of course, this couldn't happen, but yes, it does because um, we don't police the police the way we need to. And I thought this was interesting. And so I brought it to the pod. The only thing I'll say, so great narration. Let me just commend you on that narration. You really took us through the saga. That was a very, that was A plus, 10 out of 10 storytelling. Um, is Now, you and I both know if this was some Black people in the Ooh, community. Child. You should say it. They would have tore these people's house apart. They would all be in jail. They would be, it would be racketeering, it would be distribution, it would be theft. Conspiracy. Oh, conspiracy. I mean, Rico statue. I mean, this would be. Exactly. It would be on. And it's not white people. So they get a spread in the Washington Post that just lays out this narrative as if this was just like a day in the park. You're like, okay. So that was like the first thing. When you put this in the chat, I was like, if this was a black people in the neighborhood, they'd have tore these people up. So. 
That was that. The second thing is uh, there really is, I mean, obviously people, there's no shock about how I feel about the police, but it is so interesting um, when you think just structurally about, even as we work towards things like abolition or da da da, like who manages the consequence? Like who, not even who polices the police because I don't like that language, but like who is the enforcement mechanism when the police do stuff? I just don't, we, we really do not have another sector of public life. You know, and Kai and I both came from school systems when teachers do things that don't make sense, there's a whole structure. When superintendents do things that don't make sense, Lord knows there's a structure, right? Principals. Principals in Baltimore stole money from schools. They are in jail. Not that I'm saying jail is the answer, but there's a consequence structure. And the police, you know, firefighters who burn down houses, there's a consequence for arson. But the police, it's so wild that like, you know, and I don't know where the, the drop off is. Maybe we aren't telling stories well enough. Like, I don't know what the what is, but I read this and it just it just blows my mind how it gets this far. Yeah, it kind of it. It's, this is wild. And it kind of reminded me, I don't know if you all saw a couple weeks ago, but there are a bunch of like retired NBA players that are all charged with fraud because they were, I guess, putting insurance claims into their insurance and then getting all the money from it, but not showing up for the appointments. All that to say like a whole bunch of black former NBA players are now being, I mean, the United States of America against them. Um, so it's just interesting to see um, that it's just so, these instances are kind of so similar. But of course, with these former NBA players, the book will be thrown at them. It is, it, it, everything is in, in in progress as we speak. Um, and this, yeah, it's just, it's just, a story in the post that we're just waiting to see if, if something will be done. And the best part about it is that like, if there's anybody who knows it's illegal, it's y'all. Like if there's anybody who knows that this ain't right, it's you, you know, you can't buy alcohol. Like literally there's not, it's like, the, I, I'd be even more sympathetic if it was teachers doing it for a drive for school or something being like, I just didn't know. I thought, I, but if anybody knows this ain't right, it's the police. So, my news is called, Where Did All the Public Bathrooms Go? And I brought this here really as a discussion topic because, you know, I read it and I was like, well, of all the things I have never asked questions about, it definitely is public bathrooms and where do they fit in like a, in a larger conversation. And one of the things that I learned is that there's a public toilet index, who knew, that's by the UK bathroom supply company, KS Supplies, and the online toilet finding place, P Place. And what they highlight is that the U.S. has only eight toilets per 100,000 people overall, tied with Botswana. Iceland leads their ranking with about 56 per 100,000 residents. And I had never really thought about what the presence or absence of a restroom in public sort of does and what it means to like a larger society. But what the article does a really good job of is, is sort of helping us tease out the class implications of this and what does it mean that there are people who don't have an easy way or a quick way to get back home or don't have a can't spend money to go into the building to use the bathroom. But we know that everybody has to use the bathroom. And, you know, I, I also didn't know the history of public bathrooms starting as far back as that late 1800s um, in New York City. And like, it just really, I bring it here and like, I'll probably follow up after Kaya and DR you talk, but I bring it here because I was just really interested in 
in things like this that are seemingly small, but it's like the trash can thing. It's like, if you put trash cans out, people will put trash in trash cans. If you don't put trash cans out, people will put the trash somewhere else, but the trash will go somewhere. And it's like, if you want people to stop peeing on the side of buildings, you probably should, you know, put toilet somewhere. And I just hadn't ever thought about public bathrooms as an equity issue um, until I read this. Um, so I just wanted to bring it here. This is now providing so much clarity and connection for me. I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where you can't walk a block without seeing urine in a water bottle. And, you know, it, it always, I'm like, why is it just because New York is disgusting? I love New York. I live there, but it is. Or is there a, a greater reason? And so, Dre, I thank you for bringing this to the pod because I don't think I would have put two and two together. But as I'm thinking about it, I feel like New York is also the hardest place to find a restroom. Like if you're in any part of the city trying to find a restroom, you can't, a restaurant won't let, and this is even before the pandemic, a restaurant won't let you come in to use the restroom. There aren't any public restrooms. And so it makes perfect sense for people who are doing all sorts of jobs um, or traversing the city that they have to do what they can to relieve themselves. Um, and it, just thinking about, you know, my time and name any country in Europe, um, there are public restrooms everywhere. And some of them, you know, you might have to put like a coin in them to go in, but there is availability and also just like a, a different culture around public restrooms as well. Right. It's not like, I think here too, that, that that's something to tackle. It's just like, people may not want to use public restrooms here, yada, yada, yada. I don't know. But I just, the juxtaposition of Europe and how there is access to, to restrooms just anecdotally from my perspective. And then the fact that anecdotally, it has really been hard for me to find a restroom in New York to use. And with the bottles of pee on the street, this all just makes perfect, perfect sense. I will say before Kai goes, there were a couple of things too, is that one of the things that the author sort of highlights is, is the transition away from the government having any responsibility for your bodily privacy to what they call a consumer model of privacy that says like the person that like, that privacy is something you pay for and you buy. And I hadn't thought I would have never framed it like that. And I also didn't know, and this is this is interesting for a lot of criminal justice stuff, is that in the 19 in 1970, there were more than 50,000 coin-operated public restrooms, which I honestly have never seen in America at all. But there were a lot of feminist organizations and student organizations that thought that was actually unjust because it was it was you were having to pay to use a bathroom. And they thought that the end of the coin operator would lead to the presence of public, like just free bathrooms. And it didn't. And then it was this conversation about, you know, crime. Right. So like the crime wave, quote, comes and then they close more public bathrooms. The New York City subway bathrooms close. And then 9-11 comes and it becomes terrorism. But all these things compound. And the, what has stayed constant throughout all of this is that people got to pee and poop. That's the constant, right? Uh, and I hadn't thought about this. But Kaya, what you got? This was really fascinating to me. Um, I enjoyed the history of, of public bathrooms um, because, as you said, they are. this is just a harbinger for how people are really feeling about other people. One of the interesting tidbits to me was that um, during Jim Crow, they abolished public bathrooms because it was too expensive. If you put up a bathroom, you had to put up two bathrooms, one for white people and one for Black people. And so it just became too expensive to maintain separate but equal. And so their response was to just cut down on public bathrooms in general. Um, 
Diara, I'm with you. I travel a lot and it's so normal to be in a European city and be able to just use a clean bathroom. Um, and what was interesting to me is the shift from public, truly public government sponsored bathrooms to the burden being uh, shouldered by bars and restaurants. And, you know, and if you've got high traffic, I mean, those folks are 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 shouldering a, a more than just their customers. And that's why they only want uh, restrooms for their customers. But I think that this is the class implications of this, that if you have money, you can get yourself to a bathroom or you can buy a sandwich in a restaurant. And so you can use the bathroom. I can't tell you how many places I've gone into and bought stuff that I didn't need just so that I could use the facilities. Um, but that is a pure class separator. And it means that the hardworking hourly employee who, you know, is in Brooklyn, but works in Manhattan, can't easily get home and go to the bathroom. And this, this seems like a justice issue. I mean, at the end of the day, the United States sucks because we don't, like, we don't care about people in this from healthcare to, I mean, across a bunch of d dimensions, right? I love the United States. But when I look at how the rest of the world treats people, on basic things like, you know, bathrooms, healthcare. It is, it's astounding to see us continue down this path of, I got mine, you got to get yours. And so what I'm sad about is I don't really feel like there is any big movement to do something differently. In fact, one of the things that it pointed out were places like Washington, D.C. and New York had actually passed public restroom ordinances and purchased new high-tech fancy um, public toilets and they're sitting in warehouses they haven't been installed. So what? why do we have a collective lack of will to provide people with basic sanitation um, when what happens when, I mean, we know what happens when basic sanitation is not taken care of, then disease and, you know, whatever, pollution and all kinds of things. And so what makes us care enough to do right by people and let them go to the bathroom is the question that this left me with. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. 
Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with award-winning director Stanley Nelson, MacArthur Genius Fellow, and he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama. I have watched a lot of his documentaries. He's been on the pod before. I met him around the Black Panther doc. And then Tracy Nelson, also an incredible uh, co-director on this. And just her attention to detail, her ability to tell stories, I mean, just solid. So... Happy to talk to them today. I learned a lot. The The film was was truly one of the best things I've seen in a long time. Uh, here we go. Stanley and Tracy, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, you are, you might be the only three-peat guest. I feel like we've had you on, Stanley, literally like every time there's a project, it's like, please come talk to us. And Tracy, and thank you for coming. You know, I saw Attica a couple nights ago, and it's one of the few, I don't really watch all documentaries in the criminal justice space because they all drive me a little nuts. Like, they all are like, <laughs> I just, they, they frustrate me. I'm like, this is sloppy. Yeah, this is da, da, da. this one. I'm like, this should be required viewing for everybody. I called my father. I'm like, daddy, you got to watch. I called my sister. I'm like, we got to talk about it. Uh, can you start us off with how did you even get the footage? Like, what was that? I, I was shocked that that was all like real footage. So how did this start as a project? Um, I had been thinking about doing Attica, I don't know, for 20, 30 years, you know, one of the projects that was kind of in the on the back burner. Um, probably three or four years ago, I realized that, you know, one, I had come to the place in my career where I could do it and I thought I could do it justice. And and two, that the, the people who, who are alive, you know, we're getting older and, and we really had to get, get this project going. And so in, in some ways, that's how it started. Uh, I knew that there was a certain amount of footage that existed. Um, I had no idea that the amount of footage and archival stills and stuff existed as, as we found finally. And we thought that um, uh, there were people that, that should be alive and well um, that were in the yard and, and others that who were, who were at, at Attica in, in some capacity and, and could talk about it. And Tracy, you know, just did an incredible job of finding people and, um, and getting them to talk, um, just, an, just an amazing job. And Tracy, how, how did you do that? You know, and the, uh, the way the, the people who lived through it walk us through was just so incredible. And did you find 20 people and you can only put three people in? Did you, like, what was that process? There were so many people uh, there at Attica during those five days. Yeah, I mean, my intention was to get every single surviving person who was there that could talk about it. And that sort of was like the big goal. Um, that I started out with, I think, you know, diving into the research, it became apparent early on that there were all these various categories of people um, who came to it in different ways that we wanted to have tell the story. So there were the people who were prisoners, there were the families who lived in Attica, um, there were the guards that were hostages, there was the media, there were the observers. Um, and so I kind of started out in my head with like, okay, I know that we need all of these categories of people um, and obviously the prisoner story is very much central to this. Um, and so one of the things that really helped was that um, when the prisoners had their settlement, the judge that oversaw it allowed them all to come into court and testify about what happened. Whoa. And so there's a record of that, right? And so I 
just sort of methodically went through that. And that was in 2000. And so figuring out, okay, who might still be around, who seemed to have a story to tell at that time. Um, and then just kind of doing the, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak, um, as boots on the ground as we could be in the middle of the pandemic work of um, tracking those folks down and just kind of getting on the phone um, and, and talking to them. And, you know, this was a profound trauma in the lives of every single person um, that, that experienced it. And so, you know, it wasn't something people were necessarily um, initially jumping to talk about. And it took, you know, a few conversations before we even got on camera to kind of build that trust and to be very transparent with them about, you know, me and Stanley's intention um, for these slices of, of their lives and the story. But what I found was that um, once we kind of got some of that initial sort of throat clearing stuff out of the way, um, people really wanted to talk about what happened to them. And I think some of that is because no one ever received justice. Um, for anything that happened to them in some ways, being able to talk about it and have the platform and the space um, maybe felt like something like justice or something close to it um, for them. And, and the end result is pretty much what you see, what you see on the screen. I mean, they, all that, the rage, um, the fear, the sadness, the shame, the, all of those feelings were very much still there at the surface, even 50 years later. And so my job was to kind of like get out of the way um, and let them experience that. However, you know, however that manifested for them. Who was the hardest get? Who was the hardest get? Um, let me tell you who I was surprised yeah. by. I was surprised by Rockefeller's person. Yes. So, um, yeah, I really wanted to get his whole team <laughs> that was involved and most of them are just not around. Um, and, uh, you know, in the searching came across this guy who was his attorney. And yes, it took, um, I, I like to call it pleasant persistence, um, but really a lot of pestering um, and actually kind of circumnavigating to other attorneys um, who knew him, who kind of went to him and were like, hey, <laughs> you, you need to represent, um, you know, Rockefeller and this and we're doing it and you should do it. And we've talked to Tracy and we know her. Um, so yeah, that you, your instinct is probably right on that. He probably would be the most difficult person. And as you can see, he's not in the film very much. He very much is an attorney, um, very measured, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> in the right. things that he would say. Um, but I think the things that he did say that we put in the film are pr pretty revelatory. I agree. He was really interesting because, it, you know, if you see the whole interview, he's trying to avoid implicating himself and answering Tracy's questions. Um, but he he actually you know said enough so that so that we could get what we wanted and, and use him. And I think he's he's really um, you know somebody different because he represents Rockefeller. And we knew going in that that the people from Rockefeller, the Rockefeller administration, and the Nixon administration, you know, they they were already pretty old. So if they're like thirty five, then they would have been eighty five or ninety you know years old. So it was it, probably most of them would have passed away. So uh, to get him was really great. I was. I left watching the film, um, being like, "We need to strip Rockefeller's name off of everything. We shouldn't celebrate that man in any way, in any world, uh, because what he did was so, so wild." I wanted to ask a couple sort of, um, sort of questions that I had lingering. I, you know, Bobby Seale is in the movie uh, or in the documentary, but only for he's not in it much. And you know, it was. Did you learn a backstory, or was there like a? Is there something about, you know, they were frustrated. I was frustrated as a viewer, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that one of the reasons why we included that story is because um, it's known, you know, by anybody who knows anything about Attica, oh, wasn't Bobby Seale there? And we didn't want to be accused of kind of avoiding that. 
Um, but Bobby Seale came and left and, and really didn't stay very long, as, as the uh, former prisoners, you know, really say uh, beautifully. Um, and, you know, we've heard, we heard conflicting stories about why, and, and we didn't really kind of uh, feel solid enough to, to, to say exactly what was going on with Bobby, exactly what was going on in Bobby's mind. But that he did come and, you know, kind of was there and then and then left without really doing much. Yeah, I think also, um, too, is that we, you know, in telling the story, wanted to kind of recreate the ebb and flow of how the negotiations proceeded. And so there's several moments that feels like, oh, they're making some headway and then something happens and they step back. And I think, you know, that's kind of how it was. And there was this feeling, this anticipation, like Bobby is a hero to these guys that he's going to come in and. Um, you know, he's going to be the one that really just sort of convinces them and, and he's their hero and he's going to get it right. And then it's kind of like, womp, womp. Um, and that's sort of how it that's how it was. And so I think we sort of wanted to kind of create that same feeling and like ebb and flow of that tension in the film as well. You got me because I was like, OK, Bobby, Bobby coming in. And I was like, Bobby, what happened? I'm like, somebody call Bobby. Somebody call Bobby. Why does Attica matter in terms of a story being told? There are a lot of stories that we could tell about criminal justice and prisons and jails and uh, why does this one matter to you? Well, I mean, I think, think it says so much about so many different things. You know, it says so much about criminal justice. And, um, you know, we were talking before and and you were saying you're frustrated with, with most uh, docs that have to do with criminal justice. And so am I. And, and one of the reasons I, I'm really frustrated is, is you know, they center on like one person. You know, it, it, so many times... Uh, criminal justice doc documentaries center on one person and how that one person is, is wronged or, you know, by prison system or should, you know, but Attica looks at the, at in many ways, the whole prison system and, and the prison system 50 years ago, which is only in, in so many ways gotten worse. But also, I mean, there's so many subtexts in the film. It's about the power of the government and and and, and not being concerned and and you know Rockefeller's political ambitions and, and and we see that over and over again now. The political ambitions of so many of our elected officials, um, you know, Trump's and, and no pun intended, but Trump's good sense, right? And Trump's what they know is right. Um, and, and so there's that piece of it that that's so uh, resonant today. I, I think there's there's just you know so much race is 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 kind of um, a, a piece that that's always there in the film and you know from the guards from the people in the town from uh, you know all the way up to Nixon and Rockefeller so so race is also uh, one of the subtexts of the film so it's about so many things that resonate today. Tracy, can you, um, two questions. One is I had no clue about the settlement until I saw the film. Uh, and my question was like, who kept this alive? I mean, that was a long, and the settlement was way late. I mean, the settlement is like late, late. And it's like, who was, who, was it like, uh, was it like some students keeping it alive? Or was it like, like who just kept this alive to even get to 2000? Yeah, so it's funny, but Stanley and I just left doing a talk at Howard Law School. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was that this, this army of law students kind of defended um, after the 13th um, from, I think, Buffalo Law School to sort of represent um, the prisoners because they knew that there was going to be both physical and um, legal retribution against the prisoners, which there was. Um, you know, there's, there's, Attica's many things, but we tell this sort of five days, but there is, like you said, this whole 
saga of the legal, um, the various lawsuits that happened afterwards. And it pretty much was a team of lawyers um, who, without pay, worked for about 25 years um, to get led by a woman named Liz Fink, um, who was the she wow. but a lot of the photos that you see um, during the retaking were evidence that she had gathered and her team had gathered that we were able to access mm. all of these lawsuits. Um, and so eventually, I think it was kind of a thing where it was like, the 12 million was not what they had initially asked for, but after 25, 30 years, I think they realized they, they were not going to get much farther with it. Um, and the families, interestingly enough, their settlement um, basically came after the families or the families of the hostages who were um, injured and died organized to essentially shame the state of New York into giving them this settlement because after their loved ones were killed um, by the state, the corrections officials rushed in to get the widows to sign their workman's comp checks. And unbeknownst to them, that meant they forfeited any legal right to sue the state of New York. Stop. So they lost These all people of their are the worst. Right? And this is something that the state and the corrections department knew that like a grieving widow who's just lost her husband and needs the money did not. And so after the prisoners right. won their settlements, the families organized and pretty much did a public relations campaign saying shame on you to the state of New York. And that's how they, they got their settlement. Uh, and this is for either of you. I, I, another person I was shocked that was in there was the National Guard guy. He was like, mm -hmm. a, he came out of nowhere. I'm like, okay, he must've been like 20 years old when this happened. I mean, he, he, I feel like he was pretty young, but was he, did you, did you find him in a court case or did, how did, how did he come about? Yeah, both of those National Guardsmen had testified um, for on behalf of the prisoners. Um, and one of the reasons that they're sort of free to do that is because the National Guardsmen kind of, they came in as sort of the cleanup crew um, after the state troopers went in and, um, and did what they did. And so they were kind of in a space where they were able to really speak freely about the things that they said. And one of the things that was really interesting was that um, they told me they were shocked when it when they realized it was the state troopers who are essentially the people who pull you over and give you speeding tickets and have no kind of experience with doing any sort of riot control um, versus the National Guardsmen because Kent State had just happened the year before. Um, the mm. National Guardsmen were very mindful about the kind of restraints that needed to be practiced um, in a situation like this. And they also had riot training, but instead the National Guardsmen were called in to basically do medical relief to clean up all of the, you know, the damage um, after after the, the, the state police had gone in and killed everyone. So they sort of, I think, felt a freedom to kind of talk openly about um, the horror of what they saw um, in the aftermath of the retaking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it should be said, you know, that, that, that the National Guards were traumatized by the event. Um, so, you know, everybody, you know, the prisoners were traumatized, the families were traumatized, the observers who, who came in were traumatized, the National Guard was traumatized, and they were traumatized in a, in a different way, because they, as one guy says in the film, you know, we were part, unfortunately, we were part of what was going on, because we couldn't stop it. You know, and they couldn't stop the torture that that went on after the retaking of Attica, although they weren't really part of it. They were because they couldn't stop it. And so, you know, they are you know, you can see the guy's eyes are, 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 are red throughout the whole interview because, you know, he's he's so traumatized by by the events. You know, one of the things that I thought you also did well is. It showed the wonderful humanity of the incarcerated. Like the demand was not "get me out of jail." The demand was like, "This ain't right, right?" Like you now, you know, we shouldn't be fighting over toilet paper and 
you know, if people don't see it in a film like yours, they wouldn't believe it. Like they'd read it and be like, that didn't really happen. And like, no, 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 this like the demands are really nuanced and complex. So that was one. But the, the second thing is that I'm truly shocked that you had any footage after the retake. I mean, like to see, like when they were like, oh, they made the people do X, X, and X. And then you showed it. I'm like, who was videotaping this? Like that, I, I was just, did they forget the cameras are rolling? Did they not care? And, and was, and was this yeah. not a national crisis when it had, like was the aftermath, like did people not know that the retaking was so wild or did that not come out till later? Like, how is this not a scandal then? I just, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, so much of the footage was not, did not come out at the time. And those were uh, the black and white footage is New York uh, state surveillance uh, tapes. And they had, they had like the first uh, iteration of, of home video. So they had a, had a camera um, that would actually, you know, you, you could buy it off, off the shelf and you could videotape it. That was the first one. So they're videotaping the whole thing, you know, from day one, you know, from the, they're actually videotaping when the prisoners first take over the prison. They're, they're, they start videotaping. And one of the craziest things is that they leave the microphone open so that you hear them commenting on the on much of the footage where they're saying, you know, this is the biggest, blackest, ugliest Negro gentleman I've ever seen. Um, they're talking about the, all those things. So a lot of that footage came from from New York State surveillance. They they actually they actually chased all the the uh, the news cameras out right before the for the retaking. So NBC, CBS, ABC are not there. But luckily, uh, they're, they're shooting this this videotape and this black and white videotape. And that's, uh, I mean, that's just, you know, stunning that that you, you not only see the retaking, but also the aftermath and the torture that goes on. And, and that's, um, you know, just so visceral. One of the things that you help contextualize is that the town of Attica depended on Attica and that the hostage families, you know, did not come out as winners in this process, many of them. Did that not tear up the town? Like, I, I like it's hard for me to imagine that that doesn't spill over. And uh, Tracy, I'm curious, in the lawsuit, do we know the officers' names? Like, are they somewhere? Like, can we, like, do we know a list of the officers who participated in all of that chaos? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that the, the, the families, the Attica families told me is that after this all happens, because remember Attica before this, no one would have ever heard of Attica prison, let alone Attica village. It's the small town, you know, small population. Um, and one of the things that they told me is that they kind of, they, meaning the people in the Attica village bore this as kind of a mark of shame after it happened. Some of them told me that when their kids would go um, play sports against other um, schools from other teams that they wouldn't wear their varsity uh, coats because of Attica was on it. Um, and sort of, it was a shameful thing for some of them. I think it was more so the notoriety that all of this brought to their town that they kind of feel, um, that was, that changed everything for them. Um, but I think the families also are very clear. Obviously the guards and the prisoners are going to have some different perspectives on that, but that they were ultimately harmed by the state. And they feel that to this day. And you even hear in the film, D. Quinn Miller, um, whose father actually was killed by some prisoners in the initial kind of outburst of violence at the beginning of the rebellion. She also blames the state because, as you see in the film, the guards knew something was going to happen. And you hear the children of some of them saying, like, yeah, my dad would come home every day like it's tense at the prison. And they actually appealed to the corrections department and to the state to please intervene and do something. And they did nothing. So I think as much as 
you know, the families of the guards have whatever feelings they have about the prisoners, all of them, whoever it was, whether it was the families or the prisoners, ultimately understand and recognize that they were harmed by the by the state of New York and all of it. Yeah, and, and one of the great lines that, that, that I love is where, when they go to the, the powers that be, the prison officials, and, and say, you know, look, something's going to happen. Prison, uh, prison officials say, just go back to work. But, you know, it'd be a good idea if you left your wallets and, and your wedding rings and stuff at home. But we're not going to do anything. So, yes, the answer is yes. There are, um, we know the name. On the list of the people. Some of these yeah. people, um, there's some great books um, that have been written about everything that happened in the aftermath. One of them was written by Malcolm Bell, um, who was the prosecutor whose job it was to go after the police for the crimes that were committed on the 13th. That's a whole other story, but essentially he turned whistleblower when he revealed a cover-up that prevented him from... from Really? Yeah, there are many layers to that story, but yes, there are names that... We need Attica there. too. Where's the next documentary? Attica yeah, part two. You know, and there's, you know, there's no statute of limitations on murder in the state of New York. So, you know, those people aren't necessarily jumping to... Uh, make themselves known, as you can imagine. And Stanley, I have to imagine, you know, you, you've made, you've told a lot of stories and, you know, there's a finite number of minutes in a film, same thing, Tracy. Uh, what didn't make it? Was there like a thing that you were like, oh, if we had seven more minutes, we would have added this, but we couldn't. Or like, was there anything that got cut? I, 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 don't, I don't think it was seven more minutes. I think if we had two more hours, you know, there's the whole, there's the whole aftermath uh, of what happened in, in, in Attica, you know, and, and I, but I think, you know, it would have, we would have had this kind of start out with, with much more time because of the whole, the whole uh, ebb and flow of the film would have had to have changed. Um, we felt that, or I felt really that, that, you know, that, that the story ended, you know, as it was told, with the assault on Attica, you know, there was no going back, but there's a whole other story as, as Tracy's um, said that about what happened after and the cover up and the different commission that heard the evidence. And, you know, it's, it's very, uh, you know, complicated, but it also is, is, is really insightful in, in, into uh, law and order and, and the power of, of the state. So it, I don't think, you know, seven more minutes would have helped, you know, another two hours, you know, <laughs> might have helped. Got it. But I do think, but I don't want to give the wrong imp impression because, you know, in, in, in making the film and knowing that we had just two hours, that's the way we were headed. And I think that, you know, it tells a, a, a really complete and devastating story about what happened at Attica. So, Tracy, this is your first time on the pod. Uh, there are two questions we ask everybody. One is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? It will probably have something to do with trusting myself and my instinct and trusting my gut. Um, it has never led me astray so far. Um, I don't know who it was that told me that, but that probably is the most valuable advice that like that inner compass is, is never going to lead you wrong. And whenever I've not listened to it, bad things have happened. So <laughs> that probably is the best advice that I've taken and followed um, to my benefit. Stanley, what about you? Um, well, I mean, the, the best piece of advice in filmmaking is, you know, was somebody told me a long time ago, you know, enjoy the journey, you know, that, that really the, the journey is the best thing, you know, the, the people that you meet, um, you know, uh, the situations you get in, um, you know, those are the things that really count and that, you know, 10 years from now, 
you know, um, I, I might see a film that I've done and not remember whether, you know, one interview is in it or another is in it. I mean, what we cut, you know, in moment to moment, but I'll remember the people that we meet and and, and the uh, the times that we had along the way. So that, that, that was really good advice. And then the last thing is, um, you know, what do you say to people who feel like they've done it all? They protested, emailed, called, they watched the movie, they, they did all the things and the world still has not changed in the way that they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I, I would say it's a long struggle. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a long, long struggle. Um, and, 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 and part of the struggle is that um, thing, is the belief that things will change and that, you know, you have to also struggle with, um, with a, a bit of happiness and a bit of joy or else, you know, what, what are you struggling for? So I think that, that um, you know, it, it, it's a long struggle and, um, you know, you just got to keep the faith that, that uh, you know, we're on the right side. Yeah, I would say that, you know, I believe that nothing can exist in this world um, unless it first begins with a vision. Um, and I think as frustrating as it can be to kind of look out and see and feel like things are moving backwards. Um, I think there is a way in which, which in which it's important to kind of hold on to that sort of vision of the kind of beautiful, um, just equitable um, world that I think we're all, those of us of good faith are all um, hoping and striving to create and um, to hold on to that space in your mind and in your heart and know that it is possible and to know that like, we are not just struggling for struggle's sake, that we're trying to actually get somewhere um, and that that is an achievable goal, um, maybe not in our lifetimes, but I think it's important to just kind of in the midst of all the everything that we're all so frustrated and saddened by um, that, that, that we all kind of collectively hold on to that vision of the world that we're trying to create. Boom. Can one of you tell our listeners where they can watch it, how they watch it? The film is on Showtime. Um, so um, I, I guess you go to the Showtime app and, and look for it. But you know, it's, it, 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 it is on Showtime. And um, please watch it. I, I think it's, you know, a, a really uh, special piece of work and a, and a moving piece of work. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. 